So the Delta Quadrant is just a bunch of dicks, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, we see that in the next episode as well. That's kind of the point of the entire episode. So, yes. This has been the time. I mean, this has been the we've talked a little bit about this and now they're actually making the subtext text in a way. Um, Every single species they've come across has just double crossed them or revealed themselves to be evil. Or I I think we said the Vidians are the only people who have come to them at face value and they were assholes from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, the Vidians were were basically jerks, and they were telling you that they were jerks and kind of evil. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's really right. And I I, I wonder about what that is saying. Like, I don't know if that's a a point of view that the show is is calculatedly making or if it's just kind of happening. And I'm I'm not sure what the answer is. I I kind of think it's probably just kind of happening, and they're leaning into it. Yeah, it feels – the second episode – alliances in particular does feel like they noticed it they looked at what they've done so far this because now we're about a season and a half in um certainly they've written a full season and produced a full season by the time this is being written and yeah it does look like they looked at what they had and they said wow they're a bunch of jerks like this is a really lawless place um well it's funny how these i don't know just this is very kind of crazy but this is presaging just the asshole part of the internet in a lot of ways. I mean, they're, <laughs> no, they are in a place where there is, re- a, a, as they say in alliances, and that's certainly the meteor of the two episodes, we're in a very lawless place. You know, nobody is following any standards. Like, I don't know. It, it, it obviously wasn't quite commenting on that. This was a little before even the internet of the 90s, and I'm being kind of facetious, but they can no longer count on other people to have laws or I don't know there's a it's very savage in its way I'm worried that this is coming off as the we are the only people who have civilization and we're trying to bring that to the Delta Quadrant or we're trying to at least survive in a place without uh, the standards of the Federation I don't know if that's a problem or not because uh, I know DS9 did very well to say, how do you have a certain standard of morality when the people around you aren't, when there are... Yeah. When you are facing conflicts to which you can't just play nicey-nice at all and get through... What What do you do when you need to show a strength... When you need to have a show of strength without going against what you believe in? And... Um, well, I I mean, I think that that's an interesting question, especially in light of, of both of these episodes, Prototype and Alliances, this week, because... I don't know for for we can take there's two things going on here I think the first thing of course is that we are talking about a television show we're talking about drama and so they need protagonists and protagonists need antagonists Um, so in, in a sense kind of everybody that Voyager is meeting so far are dicks because they need some sort of antagonist and that is it, it I I'm trying to be charitable I think yeah. that that it it may just be that the people writing for the show are not as well versed in the idea of creating interesting antagonists that aren't just jerks if you know what i mean and that's kind of part of it i i think the other part of that of course is that alliances leans very heavily into this idea that the delta quadrant is a portion of space without rules i think as janeway puts it and if you think about what the environment of star trek has been for the past 30 years before star trek voyager was was created and aired 
it, it primarily takes place in in the Alpha Quadrant. It takes place in a region of space that is filled with antagonistic alien species that really you know without the federation does the alpha quadrant look like the delta quadrant i don't know if we can answer that question but it seems like maybe the answer is yes well well part of the implication is that a lot of i mean the kazon certainly are a new power right their society has rebooted in in the past i think 30 years they said so this at least this region of the delta quadrant has gone through a lot of upheavals and so in some ways, things haven't settled down yet in order for laws and rules to be in place. This is kind of the Wild West, and Janeway is the sheriff who's going to bring order to this place, while at the same time, not sure if she has the right to put order into this place. I mean, a lot of the talk about the Prime Directive is, can we really make a change to this quadrant where we don't belong, really? Um They just kind of want to get home. At the same time, again, in alliances, she sees the opportunity to do some good and she does feel compelled to take it. Yeah, well, I mean, well, let's let's um, we're talking a lot about alliances. Yeah, it's fine because I think it's the more like you said, it's the meatier and the better episode of the pairings this week. But I want to I want to leave that aside for for right now and focus on prototype because for for me, I think there's also some relevance to that this episode because once again you have this idea. I mean, both of these episodes are prime directive episodes. Both of these idea, both of these episodes are really predicated on the on the concept that there is uh, an alien species out there that that needs Voyager's help or would yeah. benefit from Voyager's help, and Janeway is very very clear that she is not going to give them that help and in both instances it ends very badly prototype perhaps worse than alliances but and and also the the genesis of the problem in prototype is is coming directly out of this idea of the delta quadrant as being this more lawless place yeah well the um i would say both yeah they are kind of two halves of the same problem um Prototype is dealing with this issue from a lower level, from Bolana's perspective. When she comes to the captain with her quandaries, Janeway doesn't really go through any angst. She spends a couple minutes debating the problem, but she's not really confused as to whether that's the right thing for the decision to not um, willingly give this technology to the robots is a fairly easy decision from Jane decision from Janeway's point of view, and Balan is the one street level who's dealing with it. Um, right. Alliances then takes the captain's point of view. Again, the captain has said, I am the one who has to ultimately make these kind of decisions. I'm the one best equipped. And in alliances, we ki- we see a lot more of what actually goes into that thought process. So yeah, they are very, I mean, this is a very interesting pairing to have. Yeah, no, I agree with that because I, I I think that really what I mean prototype is not interesting to talk about in terms of the actual prime directive uh, uh, problem here because it's dispensed with very quickly and I think that both of us at this point would agree with Janeway's decision her interpretation of the prime directive. Yeah. No, we are not going to let the we are not going to give the robots the ability to procreate. That is not what we are here to do, and that may have consequences that we have no idea what would happen. It spins out of control wildly. What Prototype essentially is, I think, is an episode which is predicated on the idea of of showing Belana Torres, well, showing the Maquis broadly, and then Belana Torres more specifically, the value of the Prime Directive, the wisdom of the yeah. Prime Directive, and quote-unquote, the Starfleet way of doing things. And I have to say, and this is 
again, Balan is becoming a much more interesting character because of how she's not happy with the decision that, I mean, number one, from just a... We, 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 I, I really like seeing Bellana geeking out at the, in the early stages of this episode. She's not sleeping. She's not eating because she has a problem. She's got to solve it. And she's partially disappointed Janeway says no because, well, this is a problem and I, I'm really interested and I just want to do this. This is fun. And she doesn't get to play with a new toy in a way, but she also does a feel a, re- does feel a responsibility. She, uh, she, Which, I, not to cut you off, but it, it made me realize something about Bellana while you said that, is that she is more Starfleet than, if you think about the the uh, uh, engineers, the chief engineers that we have had on our, on our show so far, and I'm leaving Scotty aside out of this because that was just a whole different era of television. Yeah. But if you think about Jordy, you think about Miles O'Brien, and you think about Bellana Torres, what what differentiates Jordy and Belana Torres from Miles O'Brien is that Jordy and Belana Torres are both shown to be to to be careerists. They they live for their work. They are really into yeah. the idea of their work and they find their work fun. Whereas Miles O'Brien is is again the everyman. He is the he is the work instead. Yeah. He doesn't want to live his job i mean how does he have fun he makes models of the alamo and plays games with his friend in the hollowed suite so it's kind of interesting to me that the show is kind of leaning into this idea of quote-unquote teaching Bolana torres the starfleet way because yeah i I think she's kind of equipped for it naturally well i'm not sure if careerist is quite the word i'd use i mean that that seems more about political and getting ahead to me but they are you know it is true i mean miles o'brien doesn't really work on these personal tech projects. He does from time to time, but that's been... And it's not incidental, I would say, that both Bellana and Jordy are single. I mean, they don't have family lives. Yeah. They don't have family lives to come home to. O'Brien obviously does, and so that's where his priorities are. Um, well, in the seventh season, when Bellana Torres and the Doctor yeah. get married and have holographic children, we oh. can test that theory. I mean, they, wouldn't they just be half holographic? I think that's really offensive. <laughs> All right, half human. I mean, I, I I think it's been clear that when Bellana was at the academy, she in a way wasn't ready. I I get the sense that Bellana again intellectually may have been obviously able to hold their own. The professor that Janeway knew uh, certainly thought very highly of her abilities, but she was probably just. You get the sense she wasn't old enough to get through the academy, if you know what I mean. Sure, and yeah. Her time in the Maquis it was what tempered her and what kind of had her grow up a bit. And now that she's on Voyager, she's completed that step. So, yeah, she she certainly has always been able to do Starfleet. She just needed a little time to bake. I Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I really think that that is – I mean, I think that's why she's so – I don't know. It's hard to say because I, I think I look at the end of this episode and she she realizes to what degree she's made a horrible mistake and she obviously corrects her mistake. And I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like this is another step on the another step on the journey that Bellana Torres is making yeah. to really be coming through and through Starfleet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is. Yeah, she just, I mean, in a lot of ways, she just needed the right captain, and she is going, you know, she will be Janeway in 10 years, maybe. Yeah, it's certainly, well, if they're if they're back in the Alpha <laughs> Quadrant by then. But, yeah, that that is certainly, and that's probably going to be the kind of captain that she will eventually be, but. It, it, this is a small thing, but, but I'm really enjoying 
scenes with Janeway and Bellana. I don't yeah. know how you're feeling about them, but they don't happen very often, but I can remember each one of them. And I mean, think think about an episode like uh, Maneuvers or way back from the, the second episode of the series where they just have this really interesting dynamic that both actresses are playing very well that it's not necessarily a mentor-mentee relationship. I think it's a little bit too combative for that. And I think, I think Torres is a little bit too old for that yeah. but they have a they have a kind of grudging respect for each other but at the same time i think it's coming from a different place because at least and i think especially in you can see that in in the conversation they have surrounding you know whether or not to to get this robot the ability to procreate but i think janeway really appreciates the fact that torres will argue with her and torres really appreciates the fact that janeway will let her argue with her yeah i mean i it's not impossible to think of Voyager in a little more family terms, um, especially when you consider Balana and Janeway, when you consider Harry and Harry Kim and Janeway, and when you consider Balana and Harry Kim. I mean, they have kind of a teasing brother-sisterly relationship. It's not impossible to put, uh, uh, put Janeway as mom in that scenario. Again, not quite maternal either, but I like that the the relationship does have rev- resonances in all of these different places. They have a compl- yeah yeah. They, they have a very complicated relationship, but it is one one that is ultimately very warm and very. Uh, here we have another instance of one of Janeway's officers disobeying an order. Right, she has been ordered not to create this thing, and Torres decides. Because of the extreme situation, it is right to go go against this order. This is something that Janeway doesn't really have any uh, – isn't upset with her at the end. She understands why Torres made that decision, and it's not necessarily a wrong decision in context either. And she understands that Bellana has some very complex feelings after this, and – I don't know. Yeah. It's- well, yeah, and I, I, I mean, I think that's a good point because one of the things that that I think struck me about this episode in particular is the fact that Janeway did not really come down hard yeah. on Torres, and I think primarily the reason for that, and this may sound facile, but Torres thought that she was doing something yeah. that, if it wasn't good, at least it was kind of morally neutral, whereas. You know, say Tuvok doing something in in the episode Prime Factors or even Chakotay doing something like in Maneuvers, their actions were a bit more not morally gray. They were a little bit more morally wrong. And so I think Janeway realizes that that Bellana has learned her lesson and she's not going to come down hard on her because, well, A, she was being held hostage. Let's not forget that. But also because I don't think that Janeway is the type of captain to say, well, you should have committed suicide. Then. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, like- no. And the yeah, the optics of the situation are also very different. I mean, when Janeway is talking to Chakotay at the end of um, the episode where he gets captured um, the other week. Maneuvers. Yes. At the end of Maneuvers, um, she specifically says, you're my first officer and you disobeyed a direct order and you just went off and – Again, in a way that everybody pretty much agrees is stupid. He should have waited, should have done this w- as a team with the plan and all of that. Um, Tuvok is such a prominent member of the crew, is her right hand, if not the first officer, and is the chief of security on the ship. And him disobeying a direct order also looks very bad. 
Bellotta, who is the chief engineer, yes, a senior officer, but also newly in that position and much junior to Chakotay and uh, Tuvok, making a decision to save the ship doesn't look as bad, frankly. It's not something that is going to cause dissension in the ranks. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Now, now the other thing to talk about in this episode, of course, is the the robot. We haven't talked about the robot C-3PO. at all. C three PO, right? Uh, and I think that I think he prefers to be called three PO. Um, I think that it's interesting only because it is very aesthetically similar to a nineteen fifties sort of science yeah. fiction. I I like it. I think it works. I think it works primarily because it's it's doing something. It's it's taking the setting of the show. It's taking the the setting of the Delta Quadrant, and it is kind of saying, okay, well, we are not in the standard Star Trek uh, uh, milieu anymore. We can do different things with different sorts yeah. of technology and not have it seem out of place. I mean, on the one hand, you could say it looks hokey, but but I like it. I don't know. I mean, it it, it is very dehumanizing in a way. I mean. Data is mentioned in this episode, and I want to talk about Data and Spock's mentions at some point. But um, oh, yeah. Data and Data was obviously played by a human actor who is, you know, just wearing some makeup, sure. But uh, wait, 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 Data wasn't real. Data wasn't real. Oh my god! <laughs> but no, the I mean, the makeup on Data was not just a mask. This doesn't even have eyes, and so it looks cutesy and hokey at first, and then. I would say later on when it's revealed, they are revealed to be a danger. I mean, that one scene where uh, he goes and they're on the monitor and he goes in front of Bellana and it's it's really fucking creepy. And, and yeah, and, and I really liked it for that moment because that's it. it, it I, I don't know. It came off a lot more clever than I initially thought. Again, I laughed when I first saw the robot. Oh, this is cute. He's a little bot. Oh, she's going to have a robot friend. And now Later, later in the episode, when they reveal their true intentions, their non-humanness becomes very obvious in a way, which is a strange direction for a Star Trek show to go. Well, it, yeah, they're non-humanness, but I don't think it discounts their their personhood. And I also That's think fair. that it it you know that that sort of dehumanizing nature of the way that they look without eyes and things like that kind of makes sense for for why they were created and who created them I yeah. mean, we don't know a lot about the kravik these these aliens that created these robots to essentially fight a war for them but you wouldn't really want them to look too i'm going to say human only huh. because there's no other word for it but you wouldn't want them to look too much like yourself because otherwise that is going to start yeah, yeah making people have moral objections or moral thoughts about what it is exactly you created these robots to do in the first place. Which is pretty much the plot of Westworld, yes. Yeah, it is, that's true. But I don't know that, I mean, that's not really what the point of the episode is, though. And I think that, you know, we could talk about the morality of the Kravik making these robots and robot free will and all this kind of stuff, but at the end of the day... That's not really where the meat of this episode lies. Yeah, no, it, it, it's they are living weapons in their way, right? They are fighting an eternal war for sides that are extinct, and frankly, the that they're they have an expiration date. They won't be destroying the quadrant 
indefinitely as they would be if they do figure out how to procreate, right? They will yeah. – it may take another few centuries, but they will eventually break down and biodegrade and you know, then, then these two cultures that destroyed each other, they will be just lost in the winds. Yeah. And it really does speak to the the very nature of the Prime Directive is talking about evolution because, you know, I think that there was a mention of evolution yes. in this episode. And on the one hand, you say, well, how could that apply to robots? But it does, right? Because this society is dying uh, naturally. And if you give them the ability to procreate, it is going to make their society evolve because evolution isn't just about life form. Yeah, it's yeah, also yeah. about society and culture. So you know, by having this war die out, that is probably the natural course of of how things are going. Whereas Torres giving the robot the ability to procreate is obviously going to have disastrous ramifications, probably centuries down the line. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, maybe the last thing to talk about then before we move on to alliances, because I uh, think that we're both excited to talk about alliances, yeah. is is data. I mean. He does get mentioned in this episode. It is a... I, I always forget if they mention him by name in yes. this episode, but they do. And, and they even make a point of he has a name, not a designation. Like, yeah, but... I mean, a number is a name. Uh, you know, I don't have a real problem with that. I mean, robots are robots. But I don't know. How, are you, how do you feel about the show? And we'll talk about Spock and Alliances as well. well but I, I, I think because I think they're two, of, they're two sides of the same coin, really. Star Trek has not ha, – ha, any time that Star Trek has mentioned an earlier character, it's been a big thing. And uh, I, I know the met, Spock's appearance in Reunification, right? You did not like that. Um, I liked it a little more than you, but you felt that it was a little unnecessary. It was kind of gimmicky. Um, and yeah. in both of these episodes, the mentions of Data and Spock seem gimmicky, seem like it's trying too hard to connect Voyager into the Star Trek canon, and when I don't feel like it's been missing that, do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it felt, feels a little pandery to me. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> you're going to enjoy an episode coming up soon. Oh, though. boy. I, <laughs> I... I don't know. I, I kind of disagree with you only because I, I would kind of more agree with you with the mention of Spock and Alliances, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Yeah, that's because, I don't know. Her talking about data to me, while it's a little on the nose because I don't think the robot was really worried about the fact that Bellana Torres wasn't thinking that he was sentient or something, but it seems natural to talk about. I mean, they do only have one artificial life form in their society and he would be very famous and i think that, and Pilata especially as an engineer would know him yeah that's true yeah and so i mean i don't think it's anything more than that i i don't i don't think that i i think that the lack of the mention would not have hurt the episode but i think without mentioning data by name it would seem a little weird and to me i guess it was it was more of a case that it was both episodes having a reference to an earlier series and i feel like there was another one last week um well tom paris in non sequitur did not mention odo by name but but oh, did yes, mention yes. the the uh grumpy uh constable or something like that and so anybody that watches deep space nine will know who that is although didn't they also talked about um i mean since they were talking about an event from the pilot which we did see that wasn't as Bad, that, yeah, that yeah, I don't I don't think that that was really a problem. I mean, the show certainly has done that in it's, the past, 
And it's I will say I mean to your point, I, I will say that that or or just say this as a point of observation that Voyager seems very comfortable with mentioning the the other characters from other Star Trek shows much more frequently than any other Star Trek show that we've seen so far has. And maybe that is just simply a function of it being in the Delta Quadrant and we can't check in with a Klingon. We can't do, you know, we can't have these nice world building bits that we did. We can't really connect to the world we know. And so this is their way of doing that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Well, I lie. There's one other thing I want to mention briefly before we move on to alliances, which is the scene between Neelix and Bellana, which yeah. uh, spearheads her entire uh, uh, solving of the problem. Um, and the only thing I want to ask you about Neelix is, when do you think he's going to get his counselor's license? Oh, it's it's I I I I like Neelix as the Guinan of the show. He's trying to be. <laughs> I think it works fine. He's got all these life lessons. He's lived a very different yeah. life than the rest of them. And you know, when you're up at four in the morning drinking bad coffee, Neelix is there to talk to you. Good for Neelix. He he has really been a very good morale officer. <laughs> I think you might want to call him Glee Nix. No, I'm not going to do that. What is wrong with you? I hate the show Glee. All right, let's talk about alliances, which is uh it's a the hell of an episode. I have to admit something. I cried a little at the end of this episode during You G- cried? I swear to god Yeah, well, I happened to read um I don't think the makeup looks that bad, Richard. <laughs> I read an article about Dickless Spencer and talking about, you know, neo-Nazi movements in the U.S. now and Donald fucking Trump is president and all of that and talking about these people as abandoning certain ideals of America and whether or not America has always stuck by its ideals is another conversation for another day, but – um it's res this the speech at the end of this episode has res resonates very strongly in how far we've come from the original series in which uh the federation is very easily living by its principles where kirk is the representative of the federation and by extension america and democracy and all of those good great things and i don't know it's it we are living in a very chaotic age and all of that, and it is extremely difficult to not want to cross one's own morality. And so, I don't know, just her speech at the end about in a lawless place, we have to follow our, you know, our values even more strongly just touched me very much. Yeah, I mean, I will say that that I think on the one hand, this episode is is incredibly heavy-handed, and I'm not sure that that's a problem. Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, we're watching this in a very particular time and place. And, you know, I, I sat down today to watch this episode. Uh, uh, as we record this episode, we record ahead of time. Uh, things are apparently spiraling out of control in the Trump administration. And, you know, we'll see what happens when this episode is released in a, a month or so. Because <laughs> who the hell knows? We might all be dead. But... It, it is the case that, it, it you know, I find uh, uh, solace in this because, yes, we've talked a lot about how Star Trek is all about, you know, people coming together uh, uh, in good faith effort, in, in a spirit of cooperation and friendship. And, you know, that's basically what Janeway says. That's how they operate. And we all know that because we've watched Star Trek all these years. But I don't know. Something about it really works. And I think that it it 
you know, I think on the one sense it, it comes across as a little naive in this episode and we can talk about that. But well, I also I, I also like the fact that Janeway is so committed to her principles. I mean, I, I, I think it's fascinating that this is coming from because when this episode was written, we're what, 94, 95? 95, yeah. 95. Um, Politically, things are very different then as they are now. And yet this is... I mean, this this is very much a message to now, I felt. Um, and, I mean, it's one thing to say, we need to commit to our principles and a lot of, when things are going well, but when things are spiraling out of control into chaos is when this is actually important. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that speaks to, I mean, one of the things that we've always said on this podcast um, in the 27 years that we've been doing it is that Star Trek has a way of 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 staying relevant even in episodes that were just random yeah. weird episodes that had were written in entirely different political cultural sociological contexts you can still find something in it and you know I think one of the one of the journeys of this podcast has always been saying okay is Star Trek great art eh, maybe not but it, it, there is something very, very profound about it. And I there think is something it, very special about it. Something very true about it. Yeah, to there some is degree. a truth and a wisdom to this. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree with that, and I think that you see that in this episode because which you know, is I, about I kinda... white supremacy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, literally, it is about white supremacy. I let let's dispense with the trade first because I find them the least interesting part of the episode now just as a point of backstory so i think i mentioned to you and the listeners yeah. a while ago i think maybe in initiations which was the second kazon heavy episode i think that that was the one with little kazon nog yeah 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 that the the kazon were were uh, uh designed to be analogs for for gangs yes. right and you can see that in this episode very specifically. So so Kenneth Biller, who wrote Initiations, apparently Michael Piller told him to go out and do research on gangs in L.A., and he did it and wrote this document. And Jerry Taylor used that document to to help her write this episode because essentially what the Trabe represent and what the Kazon represent are white and black people in America. And yeah, I, I think that, you know, I don't know that the show was necessarily aware of that, but... I think it's very well. We can see that pretty easily these days. Well, this is—I mean, this is only a few years. Is this even five years removed from the LA riots? How long ago? Uh, LA riots were ninety-one. Yeah, so this is about four years before. So still very much in in people's minds, and so essentially what and also and also right around the same time that the OJ Simpson stuff was going on, which was another analog for for the different ways in which white and black people in America view the country. What essentially happened between the Kazon and the Trabe is the equivalent of the LA riots swarm the entire planet, start start similar riots in other places, and eventually drive the Trabe out out of their home. And so you have... This wonderful double think from the Trabe where these people were violent and we locked them up and we got what we deserved, but they're going to be violent again, so we have to destroy them. You know, there there is the un- there is at once the understanding that they caused their own problems, that their treatment of the Kazon was what eventually got them to be desperate enough to fight for their own survival, and um. 
Yeah, because yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot. Well, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of overlap between the two episodes this week because that's something very similar to what happened with the aliens from Prototype, where yeah. they design these robots to fight their war for them. Uh, but they eventually turn on their masters. And so the same kind of, a, well, not the same thing, but a similar thing happened with the Trabe and the Kazon. Yeah, and we see Voyager trying to, Janeway is trying to be the, figure out the peaceful solution because there is the, there's a feeling at this point between the Trabe and the Kazon, okay, everybody's suffered enough. Like, why are – we don't need to do this. Let's stand down. And yet the Trabe's refusal to believe that and be in good faith is I, – I, I mean, they are they are very much playing the victims at, even as they are instigating this problem. Yeah, no, I think so because, you know, the Kazon are obviously skeptical of this and yeah. r- rightly so, I think. You know, there there is a little bit of a, I don't know. It, I, I go I go back and forth among in between this episode and saying that it's naive or not right because, yes, on the one hand, you have Janeway giving a couple of very nice on the nose speeches about how wonderful the Federation is and let's not forget our principles and we approach aliens yeah. in good faith and that usually works for us. You know, there's that, and the oh, second you know, she says that, you know, oh god, the Trabe are going to come and be asked. Well, right. Now. I mean, this, yeah, this is not. You know, I, I would say that this is a sort of didactic episode, but I don't know that it works any less for that reason. Yeah. You know, and that that voiceover is 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 you know, uh, 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 they run under that images of the Doctor helping all of the little Trabe children, you know, get their malnutrition taken care of. So yes, obviously everything is great, and but what the real, I think what the real sadness is of it though for me is. The the Trabe, if they had actually yeah. internalized the lessons that they should have learned, if they, that, that they said they learned, right? Like the Trabe are able to snow Janeway into believing <laughs> that they have learned their lesson are and now are basically, you know, Federation light, that they want to go to the Kazon. They want to say, yes, we should not have done this to you. This was a This was a mistake. You know, we did not do it. Uh, we were all children when this happened or not even born, but we we apologize or whatever, right? Yeah. But then the other part of that is that Janeway's own goodwill and her own her own sense of approaching this negotiation, approaching the trade in good faith, in, in trusting them until proven otherwise, has pretty bad consequences, and I think that it's important to show the bad consequences yeah. sometimes. Well, I, I mean, I think the hell of it is the Kazon, although they have several complicated motives, I mean, the only reason Seska is able to finally convince Hermage is, well, you know, partially ego, you don't want to be the only one who doesn't show up, and also enticing him with, well, you'll be able to find out what their things are, but the Kazon are actually willing to negotiate. They may have a slim possibility. They prob- they may not get through this with everybody being happy, but all of them do show up, and none of them are sabotaging the meeting. And I think that's very significant. I mean, I Janeway would obviously love to leave this region of space peacefully, right? She would love if everybody would be happy. If there is a legitimate way to negotiate peace between the Trabe and the Kazon, we see her trying to take it. I feel like the Kazon actually have a glimmer of being willing to listen to reason on this. I, I think so, too, because, you know, it, it kind of contextualizes what we've seen of the Kazon before, right? That, 
they, in a sense, are not these sort of mindless, violent people that that Janeway or that other people make them out to be, not Janeway. Um, and and what I look, I look at that and I say, okay, well, what's happening with the Kazon here is that they are they were basically abused for centuries and they are now sowing their own oats or whatever. They, they only know how to deal with each other through the use of violence as well, which is something that, you know, abuse people. That's, that's how they interact with the world a lot of times. And they have to unlearn that sort of behavior. And well, yeah, if they're, they are placed into ghettos where there is even less, uh, things to you know even fewer resources and so they are fighting among themselves even in an expansive galaxy they're just it's habit yeah oh well, you're right it's it's well it's more than habit it's sort of it's it's how yeah. they interact with the world it's how their psyches have been shaped and yes of course a lot of the Kazon that are now in charge did not live on the trade home world when they were under occupation by the trade but it is the case that those kind of things would still be passed along to them culturally and socially. But again, they are willing to at least sit down on the table and if this ended with the Trabe saying, listen, just leave us in peace. Voyager's going to escort us out. Once we're out of your space and even further and we find a nice place, we're going to settle home. We'll never see each other again. Um, I mean, these these as you said, these Kazon, most of them did not grow up on the homeworld, and certainly in a generation, none of them will have grown up on the homeworld. And so, with the Trabe totally out of it, and at least they've all agreed on this one thing, that may be the first tiny step towards stability. Again, it's only been 30 years. It hasn't had time to settle into rules and stuff. In a generation, it might be a little more stabilized. They may find themselves into diplomatic entities. I, I want to move away from the Kazon for, for a minute, though, and maybe we'll come back to them, maybe we won't, because the other part of this episode, I mean, we'll have to talk about Seska as well, but I think the other very important part of this episode that is kind of understated is this idea of, you know, what... what responsibilities does Janeway have to the rest of the crew? Is it enough to get them home without sacrificing Federation ideals? I mean, she very coldly tells the Maquis who is upset at the death of his friend, uh, from from a series of Kazon attacks that is probably has everyone on that ship on edge, uh, that she would destroy the ship before she would let one piece of of Federation technology get into the Kazon's hands. And I just I wonder about that because we're supposed to I think we're supposed to to sympathize with her, but at the same time, yeah. what are they what are they trying to get home for if it's not to get home? I I I, I think that there's a there's a question in my mind about I don't know what right Janeway actually has to make this decision for all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if you know, if that guy was on a regular Starfleet vessel, tooling around the Alpha Quadrant, decided that this was not for him, resigned his commission and went off to live in San Francisco, he could do that. That would be fine. But Janeway is now telling him that that he is under pain of death uh, and he doesn't want to be under pain of death. He wants to get home or not die. And I, I think that there's a fundamental problem with Janeway's approach. Well, there's two things that I'm thinking of is number one, in the Alpha Quadrant, 
there would also be somebody to complain about Janeway's decisions too, right? If this guy, if somebody believed that legitimately Janeway was making poor decisions, she wasn't a good. There would be a structure in place for dealing with that kind of a thing, especially in the in Starfleet. There would she would have accountability. He and and she, there, there, there kind of is because there is that bizarre idea in Star in in, in Star Trek that the Doctor can override the yeah. Captain if he thinks she or he is compromised. Which you know, all right. But I, but, but I see what you're but, saying. But, I mean, but, it, but, the, but that wouldn't de- – but that's not the case here. Janeway isn't compromised if she just is making a decision and she is making this decision with all of her faculties intact and she, there is, she's not being influenced, right? It's so – this is a legitimate decision from her point of view, but I, – I, do you know what yeah, I mean? Beca- yeah, no, because I, I, I see what you're saying because I think that, that you're right that in this kind of context, eventually there would need to be some sort of review board put in place or something. Yeah. That, that you know, if they did decide to challenge the captain's uh, decision, it would be such a massive, you know, political thing that they would probably almost never do it. But they, they would have to do it sometimes. Yeah, this would be there would be a barrel trial kind of episode, right? But this is not a there there is nobody to do that. And the other point is that while I think I may agree with Janeway's decision that the Kazon can't have our tech yet because they are not going to be using it responsibly, it will cause a war in the quadrant. Um and second, that guy does start dealing with the Kazon, right? He doesn't sell them any tech, he doesn't really give them any major information because the negotiation ends up happening before that but he is communicating with them People well so are- i don't I, I just just as a point of clarification i don't know that the guy who is dealing with the kazon is the same guy that oh. challenged janeway in the mess hall i mean all white men look alike but, so i don't know but yeah but in a way it doesn't matter right because the point is made Be- people are going to disagree with janeway's decision and I mean, Seska's an extreme example of what happens when somebody questions one decision. Maybe nobody is going to go as far as Seska has, but people are still going to go behind Janeway's back if they feel that her authority is not for them. Yeah, I mean, think about the number of times that that someone challenged, you know, Picard or, or God forbid, Cisco's. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, orders and i i mean i i can think of a few instances but not many and so far in in the year and a half that voyager has been on the air we've had uh chakotay our first officer tuvok her her security officer and ta- for chat tactical chief uh Bellana Torres, her chief engineer uh seska who okay we'll we'll let seska slide because she was a secret obsidian order agent uh, and she's also got this Maquis guy now who is who is uh, secretly going behind everyone's back and, and Janeway's back by, uh, you know, by by the, the property of uh, transitive property. Uh, I don't know that Janeway is understanding that that her hardline yeah. approach to this is causing a lot of this to happen. She doesn't. Yeah. There, I mean, this is one of those power isn't a real thing, right? It is a it's an illusion. It's something that's done. It's something that it's a process in a way. And it's a process that is more easily renewed and wielded by Janeway in the Alpha Quadrant. But yeah, she doesn't quite realize the degree to which it is breaking down, the which the you know, the longer they are farther away, the more her power may fade. Yeah. And, and also and, I. I just think it, it's interesting as well that the the two characters in this episode that 
and Chakotay who brings her the idea of the alliance with the Kazan and Tuvok who essentially talks her into it uh, have also violated her orders. Yeah. And I think it's hilarious that the position that the, the thing that they propose is exactly what Seska was want, wanted to do in the first place. I mean, this is I, I, I can only imagine Seska's reaction when, you know, when they first tell her this, because she must be thinking, well, you fucking kicked me off the ship. I had to leave. And now you want to do this. OK, sure. But it is a mark of the fact that time has passed, frankly, the fact that they are reevaluating that decision. Now they, of course, at the end of the episode, come to decide, no, we were right in the first place. We shouldn't deal with the Kazon. But again, the Kazon are dealing with them fairly at the end of the episode, at least enough to get to the table. Yeah. Well, that I al- may change. Yeah, that may change. And I, I also think the other thing to keep in mind as well is that, you know, in State of Flocks and then again in, in Maneuvers, the idea was that Seska was was trying to get at their technology. And that is something that Janeway yes. uh, cannot abide. That is her hard line. Okay, that's fine. You know, we're talking about, you know, nuclear weapons, right? We don't want North Korea to have nuclear weapons. So we're not going to, that's our hard line, right? That makes sense to me. I understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but. Janeway going to the Kazon and saying, we will provide you what? Like, we will provide you our ship, we'll provide you help, medical supplies, food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, what? what is in this for the Kazon? Like, I think that just as Janeway is being a little naive in, in, in believing that her power is her power structure is going to stay in place or the command structure is going to stay in place for the 70 years it's going to take them to get back to the Alpha Quadrant. <laughs> okay, I also yeah. think that Chakotay and Tuvok are being naive in thinking that the Kazan are going to go, oh, we're going to get penicillin and pizza? Great. We don't, I mean, need, <laughs> we don't need your replicators or transporters or anything like that. I would say the Seska answer to that is just, sure, let's do this very tiny alliance, and then we have our foot in the door. And, and, you know, maybe in six months, well, you know, it would be really nice if we could have some food replicators on there, or just something that could make water. Nothing else. It just makes water. And then six months from then, well, maybe we could have food, too. You know, like, I, I feel like Seska would be influencing the Nistrum that, all right, Voyage is here, Voyager's here, and they're our friends, and we just gotta play nice until they give us more stuff, and they're more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think, yeah. And, I mean, the other thing, too, of course, is that they are going to leave Kazon space eventually. I mean, yes. the Kazon are not owners of the entire Delta Quadrant. <laughs> so th- this is going to become a solved problem at some point. We just don't know when. Yeah. I, I, I Again, I think they figure, you know, for the Kazon, what they would really get is the opportunity to get more before they leave the space. But it is true. This is a very cited argument towards Voyager. Yeah, 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 yeah. And well, Voyager kind of has to manipulate the Kazon that they are allying with to say, well, you know, the three of us groups are stronger than the Nistrum. And, you know, they're trying to play on the Kazon sense of this rivalry between the sects. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that the rivalry between the sects is one thing. I think that the Kazon are, are, are starting to be portrayed as a little bit more reasonable than we otherwise thought they were. And there's also fewer sex than I thought there were. There seemed to be five. So, okay, that's fine. Uh, I, I guess the, the last thing I, I want to talk about before we wrap this episode up yeah. is uh, 
the the one thought that I have in real, I keep going to in the pale moonlight, and yeah. you know that is such a outsized yeah. episode on the franchise that it's it seems churlish to to uh, compare this episode to that. And certainly, yeah. the pale moonlight happened a few a few years down the road. Uh, in in terms of where Deep Space Nine was at this point, and let's remember that Deep Space Nine was uh, in the third season, so in the early third season of its show. Um, do you think that this interpretation of, or, or, or a kind of criticism or examining of the Star Trek ideals in an episode like this is is done is done well? It's certainly different than where Deep Space Nine goes. Well, it's also I would say it's very different from where Deep Space Nine was, just in terms of their. So, season three is when we're beginning to see the Dominion. We're still dealing with the Cardassian stuff, and I mean, frankly, the Trabe in a lot of ways reminded me of where Cardassia is at the end of Deep Space Nine, and I wonder if that's going to be the you know if the Cardassians are going to eventually become the Trabe or not. But um, I guess that's a side point. Um, I would say, though, there have been less – there were fewer challenges to the ideals of the Federation in DS9. We certainly had a lot of other perspectives, but we – the Cardassians were not an existential challenge to the Federation, at least not in the same sense that D- the Dominion became, right? Yeah, um, yeah. The Card- you know, they were certainly different. They certainly had different philosophies, but it was still a view of – Tolerance, openness, diversity versus dominance and, you know, control and authority and all of those things. Um, and so I would say the Kazon way of life – the Cardassian way of life I think is a little more comprehensible to the Federation. The the Kazon way of life so far does seem to be this constant – War, first of all, war against the trade, which may have been justified, and then war against each other. And again, it's it's a lawlessness. It is a sense of nobody willing to deal. At least the Cardassians are willing to deal at times. Yeah, yeah. But but again, I think where they, this is showing that in the right circumstances, the Kazon can can and may want to negotiate and may understand the importance of negotiating, and that's that's a first step. This yeah. episode is a very important first step, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's right because what what I what I keep coming back to is is the idea of of strategy versus tactics, right? And and that also speaks to Chakotay's uh, one of Chakotay's conversations in this episode with Janeway, where he essentially says, you know, the the Starfleet way is great, the Federation way is great, but that may only work. And he doesn't even say does only work. He he kind of says may only work. It, it's a it's a it's a a theory of his yeah. that that their approach may only work in the Alpha Quadrant when you have the full force of the Federation, you know, apparatus yeah. behind you. And when you are one ship alone in a distant part of the galaxy with absolutely no backup, they can't fly to Starbase Two and get supplies. They can't go back to Earth. They, you know, there's no other. There's no backup. There's nothing. They are out there by the themselves that the, the the overall strategy of you know uh, uh which is kind of what i'm thinking of in terms of the starfleet morality which is approaching alien cultures in good faith in 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 believing to trust until and unless you are pro- un, uh, until proven otherwise yeah that that those are the strategies involved and the tactics may have to change you know the tactics in the federation of we don't get involved in wars we don't make alliances with other alien races uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, those tactics may have to be different in the Alpha Quadrant. And I think the one failing of this episode is perhaps the end of the episode with Janeway's rousing speech about how maybe they were all right and she was how how they were all wrong and she was right <laughs> is a little bit too far for me because I kind of think that Chakotay and, and Tuvok and the Maquis and everybody else have a point and I yeah. think that they're going to continue to have this problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is the... I mean, put it this way, we're probably, you know, I assume the Kazon arc is the first kind of chunk that we're dealing with. We'll probably be dealing with them the rest of the season. I don't know if we'll be dealing with them next season, but... Yeah, at some point they will. They will. They're going to, as they say, they're going to leave K's on space and deal with something else. And that you know, they may figure out the K's on stuff. They may figure out how to get the K's on to fairly deal with them. But they're eventually going to face things that will not fairly deal with them again. I know that eventually the Borg are going to show up, and the Borg don't negotiate. Or do they? Well, that's going to be the interesting challenge, isn't it? Uh, I guess just on a plot note, uh, Seska is telling the Maj that it's his baby. And of course, this is just high soap opera drama. Going I was on. about, yeah, there there was a reason why Seska stuck out of my mind as a soap opera character. And I think it's <laughs> this reason. So Yeah, now, I ought to, now let's put it this way. If it turns... If the Maj, who is extraordinarily misogynistic, who is very, you know, not comfortable with having, you know, taking orders from a woman and all of that. But so far, Seska has managed to hold her own around there, has managed to figure out how to make her suggestions and calm him down and all of those stuff. But she is in a very precarious and kind of dangerous position. And yeah. I'm your I, I'm your consort, and I'm carrying another man's child. It's going to get her killed immediately. So certainly, she has a lot of very strong motivations to lie. Well, I will I will ask you a very deliberate question. Why yeah. Why do you believe Seska when she says it's Chakotay's child, and you don't believe her when she says it's the Maj's uh, child? Oh no, I guess my my my. I guess where I'm taking in this is it's equally plausible, and it's also plausible it's Tuvok's kid or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's also it's also plausible that Seska took some of her own DNA and impregnated herself with it. We are talking about science fiction. Yeah, and do we even know she is indeed pregnant at this point? Has that been confirmed? But uh, I mean, assume she, she is. could She's just probably yeah. She could just be eating a lot of stew. We don't. Know. <laughs> I don't know. No, um, there there. Is she telling Chakotay it's yours to mind fuck him, to create a bond between the two of them, to get herself an out if she decides that st- that the Kazon ship is a little too hot for her? Uh, or is, you know, is it is it legitimately his and she's lying to the Maj to protect herself, to, to, to keep her position, to solidify her position even more? Yeah, yeah. Plot twist, it's actually Neelix's child. Oh, no. It, yeah. Oh, my God. Poor Kess. <laughs> after all of that. No, that would make the jealousy be really ironic because after all this jealousy, he was the one who was playing around. <sighs> that Neelix. I, 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 I guess apropos of nothing, I really loved uh, Janeway and Tuvok in his quarters. Uh, he's half smiling. He, like, tilts his head when she's talking. He's, like, practically ebullient in, the, in that scene. Uh, yeah. 
And I love that because they're in his quarters. She is a good friend of his. They're, you know, talking intimately. He's extremely relaxed, and it's really nice seeing Tuvok relaxed and at home. Again, I, I, I even going back as far as I, I'm thinking of Sarek and Amanda and how, you know, his reactions to her. Uh, again, it's nice seeing a relaxed Vulcan. Yeah, I guess I, I I I agree with all of that, and I think the the little orchid speech is very nice, and, yeah. and his intimate uh, knowledge of Janeway, knowing that she likes Vulcan spice tea when they, she comes for their heart to heart, is very nice. I will just point out though that a relaxed Tuvok is still a uh, Tuvok that is wearing his uniform. Of course, that well, you know, he he is a Vulcan. <laughs> comfort is illogical. <laughs> this is comfort. It has been designed by the Federation for maximum breathability. It's moisture wicking. I mean, I'm sure that there are. Uh, I know that the costumes, especially on early seasons of TNG, were very poorly made. But in the Federation, this is the best material that ever could possibly be. I think that's very true. <laughs> All right, well, I think that's it for this episode of the podcast. If you have any thoughts on either of the episodes we just talked about, Prototype or Alliances, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow, which also supports our other podcasts tuning in. We are releasing our new podcast on the X-Files episodes Firewalker and Red Museum in two days on Thursday. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truck About Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an iTunes review for Truck About. It is the best way for new people to find the show. And the more stars we get, the more we feel great. Next week, we are going to be talking about the Star Trek Voyager episodes Threshold and Meld. (laughs) 